that basically disrupted all the mobile games industry that we have seen before. Although what I hear from conversations with investors or VCs, a lot of them are saying we don't understand video games. We don't know. We don't know if you're building the next hit or not. We cannot say. So, um, but you have seen, uh, if, you, if you read the news, there's so many game funds launched, so much money being ready to invest. Welcome to The Box. The blockchain box, where we talk to industry insiders who actually built it. And we are here with Michael Haber. He's an original Austrian game developer, fundraiser in between, and now off to new ventures. Let's try and talk about a little bit about your journey, your career, what happened in the last, let's say, 30 years in game development space, in the online gaming space, and um, even before. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, Michael. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Well, so, uh, so, so interesting, amazing. Well, it's quite funny if I look back at how, how I started, like as a kid, playing games on back then a Nintendo Game Boy and a Commodore Amiga, Commodore 64 first. And very early on, like still as a, as a school, um, how is a school kid, going to school, I was already curious how, how games are made. I just did not only play the games, but I looked at it um, from an analytical point of view, like how are they designed? How do you make them? And I really started looking into the code even, um, decompiling the games basically, and that's how I learned programming. So basically pretty amazing, back in the day, you checked the code of the games even when you were going to school, even as a young kid. So then um, later on you transitioned into game development, you started to um, arrange conferences, even before there was a LAN party, because there was no LAN back in the day. So how did that actually work out? What did you use then? Well, I always like to meet with like-minded people. So some of them were my classmates. Some of them you met basically um, kind of by chance. They also had a Commodore at home. And at some point, I was, I think, 15 or 16, I decided, why not organize a party where we all meet? We bring our computers. And what I did, <laughs> I called a restaurant nearby where I lived in a small city in, um, in Styria, in Austria, asked if I can rent the whole, uh, the whole room for like all day and all night. I said, yeah, sure. If you have a lot of people coming here, sure, we can do that. And so I, I think around 90 to 100 people came all with their computers, a meeting, talking to each other and looking at each other's codes and demos and softwares. It was really like teenagers meeting um, that was, I think, early 90s. Um, yeah, trying to find out what's, what's going on here in, in all this computer world. And that's how people like I were learning to code also. So talking about this, talking about learning how to code, you have seen the whole journey. You have gone through several projects in between. Um, obviously, time has changed. And when you think back on your first projects, what, what were they about? You have a big history with Joe Wood. Some people might know that. But even before that, let's, let's pick up some of those projects. Well, you know, in the beginning it was all learning. You didn't, I, I didn't know what I'm doing. I just was curious and tried to play around with stuff and everything took forever. Like all the games I wanted to make took so long. I didn't, most, most of them I didn't even finish. It just, was just not fun anymore. Uh, but at some point, it was, um, let me think, mid-90s or so, I was working on a strategy game just as a hobby while still going to school. And some other friends of mine joined this project, were also helping to program, doing some art. It was a game like The Settlers. Um, which later became the settlers. It didn't exist back then, but it was a city builder strategy game. And after three and a half years or so working on this project after school, basically in our garage, garage, um, 
I went to a small company uh, and said, hey, we're, we're looking for funding. Can you get, are you interested in fund that project and the continuation of the development? Um, they looked at it and said, well, it's a cool project, but uh, we're not going to fund it, but we would, we would hire you as a programmer. And that company was called Chobut. Chobut, yeah. Uh, that was 96, 97, I believe, when I went there first, when I met them first, maybe 97. And, and at that time also, they just released their first, or maybe it was the second game. It was basically the first significant game called Industry Giant, which was a simulation of um, industries and economy or an economy. And that game was hugely successful. Like they sold 100,000 of copies. And um, there was a studio in Upper Austria, Ebense, and I was the first full-time employee um, they hired after the four founders and the secretary. And so there I became a first real professional programmer. Before everything I did was just a hobby and uh, learning by doing. And that was a huge hit back in the day. Seven, eight hundred thousand copies, something like that roughly. Not everybody had a computer at their home at those times. It wasn't so widely spread. So this was really a huge company. For those who don't know, that was a milestone in your career who kicked off a lot of things in the later, later stages, right? So, well, I was, I was lucky to be part of the journey of Chobot very early. Uh, but of course, there was already um, a bigger company there or there were already other studios there that got started in parallel to the, to the one studio that I worked in. So I worked on another strategy game there and became a former programmer, I became a lead programmer. I was doing a graphics engine, engine which today you wouldn't do anymore because there's Unity and all the other Unreal and, and whatnot uh, engines out there. But I was really making the engine from scratch and I wrote around 100,000 lines of code, most of it in assembler, really optimizing for the Intel Pentium back then, which was an amazing geek kind of work, but it made the engine quite good. Um, and then uh, that was 1999, I went to my first conference in the United States, a game developer, GDC conference. And there was a presentation which was funny for us, a small Austrian company. We looked at a presentation of Sim, uh, The Sims, I believe, for SimCity. I think SimCity, one of the early SimCities. And the CTO of uh, Westwood Studios, an electronic art studio, showed their engine, which was having bugs, actually. It didn't work correctly. Like the objects there moving through the city were not correctly displayed. And we kind of laughed at it and said, well, our engine is even better, like from a small Austrian company. So that was a very nice, small success feeling. Just, how to say, where you get a response from the market, what you're doing is kind of valuable, it, it makes sense. I kind of feel there's a big parallel to nowadays. You mentioned you as a small Austrian company had this improvement to the code and said, oh, our code is actually working fine. Yours is probably a little bit messed up. So. That's where a lot of laser innovations came also from rather smaller companies. Maybe that's up for the future again. But let us pick up right there. After the trip to the US, after the trip to the States, what happened? So uh, what I've been working on at the company was a Traffic Giant. And later on, uh, I started to work on Industry Giant 2, the second sequ the sequel of the first success story. But at the time, I got approached uh, by a company called Siemens which was one of the two first European companies to create uh, mobile phones capable of running mobile games. And by some coincidence or whatever, I got approached by them and I thought I always wanted to have my own company, always, since I was young. Um, and basically that was the right moment to, to decide, okay, I'll do my own thing. And uh, I had my first client in, uh, with Siemens, started my first company in 2001, which I think was looking back one of the first at all in Europe to do mobile games. There were not many companies back then at all. 
So a real pioneer back then. Lucky to be a pioneer, basically, yeah. Let's pick up that year 2001. When you founded the company, um, as you mentioned, the f maybe one of the earliest mobile game development companies um, named uh, Xendex back in the day. So this was uh, another huge milestone because you were approached by Siemens when they started building mobile games. But what, what followed after that? You founded it, you started the development, and how long did it take to make the first product uh, the first MVP, or how did it go on? How did you move forward from that step? Well, that's a great question, because back then there was no market, there was no mobile games industry. So for the first years, our projects were kind of experimental, even for Siemens. Uh, so we basically built games for different phones, like one game for one phone only. There were no different kind of smartphones or feature phones. Um, well, project after project basically came in, and then in 2003, if I remember correctly, the first stores came to the market where they would sell mobile games uh, as a Java game. Like in Austria, there was uh, A1, Telecom Austria, later T-Mobile, um, then Free Orange. But it was around that year where the first stores appeared and Siemens was a technology company also, not just a mobile phone manufacturer. And they built um, backend software or game portals for those stores. So we were not just doing experimental games, but later on also started to make or sell those games through the Siemens platform to telecom operators. Pretty interesting, you mentioned starting out with not even having a market. Now everything is different, everything changed. Mobile is um, a huge market. It's probably in some countries, definitely it's bigger in some countries than PC gaming. In some countries it's bigger than gaming on gaming consoles. But some countries still have a huge area of PC gaming and professional gaming, professional league gaming, um, eSports. So developing from the first actual viable product, how did that move forward? How did you move forward? Uh, the company was, was running for years and years and decades. We have now 2022. Um, so what happened in those 21 years? Right. I think the next important milestone, when we started 2001, the next important milestone was the first color screen phone, which was a Nokia 3510, I believe, if I remember those, those name, names correctly. So that was maybe 2004, 2005, maybe 2004. And when you saw that, or when you saw that, oh, my phone has colors now, and the resolution was similar to the old home computer systems, a lot of people realized um, it's just a home computer in your pocket, basically. It has the same features, same capabilities. Okay, you don't have a keyboard, but you have a phone, uh, the phone buttons. And the first, in the games industry or the first games companies realized that they rebuilt classical games, um, branded or non-branded, on those small phones. And I think the color screens were the most important next, next milestone. And then all the phone manufacturers would come into the market and starting, and starting to, to see how, how fast it was growing and they wanted to have a cake, piece of the cake. And then when that went on, I think in Europe we had around 100 to 200 significant companies in that space, but everything changed in 2008 or 9 when Apple released their iPhone. That basically disrupted all the mobile games industry that we have seen before. So that was actually the, the shift which changed with the color screens, right? Um, to, to make the, the game and the power of the, the computing power of the mobile phone bigger, that was the next shift. And well, what happened, you, uh, as the mobile phones' capacities grow very rapidly, like bigger screens, better CPUs in their phone, um, 
better speeds, more memory. What you saw in a few years is basically the repetition of decades of video games industry before on consoles or the Commodore systems happened, ha happened basically in light speed. So you couldn't even, if you started to make a game and you were releasing the game half a year later, it was already like outdated in terms of technology. Someone would do already do something better or came up with a kind of fake 3D engine. So everything happened very fast. And the games industry is known that everything happens very fast, basically. I, I get shivers when I hear that kind of stories because Right now we are again on such kind of a point where technology evolves very, very quickly. And we have seen it in the Bitcoin space, for example, where a lot of new applications came in within the last two or three years. And um, this was an amazing shift. So there's another parallel from back in the day, computing power was growing so fast. Then the games you actually developed when the development was done, as I understand correctly, the power of the computers or of the mobile phones was so fast again that actually was outdated already. So Technically speaking, yeah. Yeah. So what was the solution to this issue? How could the game still be successful with this tremendous development uh, pressure for the teams and what? for you as a company? How did you go around that? It's really a key question. How do you build your business as a games company? And there is not one answer to that. but. Um, you know, at some point we learned and being game programmers and technicians ourselves, we, it took us some time to realize, but it's not about the technology, which is a success factor. If you look at some of the most successful games in video games history, think of Pac-Man, Tetris, um, Pong even, they're very simple in terms of technology. So once we understood, it's not about technology, it's more about the game fan and the, maybe a brand. We went more in that direction to do a bit of branded games, uh, work for hire. So we also worked for other uh, game publishers to make games for them and they paid for it. We, we stopped risking everything from our own pockets, basically. So we diversified a bit in, uh, in those things. So basically, at the end of the day, it's really not about technology, but more about the game fun and uh, the beauty of the game also. So it's really all about the product. The product has to be good enough to run long enough, to have a long enough life cycle, could that be one of the keys to, to transition with technology and with evolving technology? One of the most important things, of course, is the product. But like in most industries, I would say it's also about the marketing. How do you market the game and how do you sell the game? And we've not been at Senex so good at that part. We had our distribution network mainly focused on um, let's say Central Europe, but we could not compete with the large publishers that came to the, to the market um, 2005, 6 and so on, who either bought companies or just built it themselves. So we couldn't compete with them. We, I, and once I saw that, I basically started to divide the company into segments. One was the distribution in markets in Central Europe, maybe a bit of Latin America, and the other one was the game studio, making games. And that worked quite well, that balance. And you were also a big company back in the day. You had 60 employees at one point, and you also had been outsourcing, right? That was a quite an interesting story. Maybe let, let's go a little bit into, into that topic a little bit. Yeah. So we grew organically uh, the first six, seven years until 2007, 8-ish. Um, that was a difficult time for us because um, it was a lot of the products went up in quality so much. We could barely keep pace with the, with the market. And luckily in 2008, we raised some venture capital from um, business angels and also an uh, investment fund. In total, it was around 3 million from the investors and another million or so public funding that we got, I mean, over the time, not, not all at once. 
And so that helped us to grow the company further. Uh, and we tried to be successful where we could, like in distribution in those alternative markets, but also in, in games productions. But we kind of did everything that, was, that the market needed. Like it was, uh, we did testing services for telecom operators. We made uh, branded games for people like uh, Bandai Namco. For example, we created a Galaga 30 Years edition. We worked on a lot of other uh, kind of known uh, brands or other games for big publishers, Electronic Arts, for example, Konami with Red Bull, uh, THQ, a um, lot, lot of interesting names. Um, but still, we never really got into the profit zone, honestly speaking. So we kind of burned that cash from the investors. And yeah, it, 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 it was really hard to keep up. And you're right, uh, in total, it, I think 2009 was our best year. Um, we were on around 60 people uh, in Vienna, Poland and India which was a post-production facility in India. And we landed our biggest deal back then with an American publisher doing free games for them. Uh, some of them, the audience might know, World Poker Tour, the third edition, uh, Beverly Hills, 9210, and the third game was uh, The Sabotur, an EA brand we brought to the mobile phone. Oh yeah, and we did a fourth, fourth game for them, which was iShoot, a very early iPhone success story from a one-man uh, indie developer, and we made the Android version for that client. It was the biggest deal the company ever landed. It was $1.2 uh, million from an American publisher, and that was around 2009. And there, yeah, you're right, we were around 60 people, but just in that short time frame. Not all, all those years, of course. So that was, that was a tremendous success, a huge success, and um, EA Mobile was a big part of your company back in the day and shifted through time and time and then you moved on and uh, you started as a fundraiser if i get that correctly you started buying games buying small games all right and then you move forward you transition a little bit your business with a different company right yeah it's not exactly fundraising what we did but we were buying games that's true from other studios basically to fill the market, um, the distribution channels we already have built over time. So because the games we made were just a certain amount of games and for most of them we didn't even have the distribution rights because they were owned by the big publishers, our clients. So we started to, to buy or source games from third parties, um, but not as an investment um, business, we rather uh, licensed the games mostly on a revenue share basis and then sold these games into our markets. And this is the business now, you're still doing this business? You're still buying right. games, right. you're still holding the licenses, and you're still able to sell one or another title, um, well, if, if, if that's part of the business, if that's well, the case. That's already in the next company that we're doing this now. But back then we have been doing this a little bit, that's true. Um, and we, EA Mobile was a major milestone for us as well. We landed a, a huge deal for many, many years. All together, I think we supplied them over 50 titles. But I should specify, it's not the EA Mobile that you would see on an App Store, because our business always has been the non-App Store business. Always has been, always... Uh, and we never basically managed to, work, to become an App Store publisher as Sendex. And so, yeah, as Sendex we worked with EA Mobile between 2013 and 17 or so. But uh, the market was going down. You have, to, you have to imagine when the iPhone started to disrupt the mobile games industry, the traditional market of telecom stores went down 30% a year and we were always in this traditional segment. So obviously our company went down with the market as well. Investors were not willing to put more cash in the company. We had burned it before. So we kind of were in a sinking ship on the traditional mobile game space. And uh, one of the major um, deals we could land and to help the company to, to have some business was EA Mobile. 
But when they ended 2017, it was kind of the end for Sandex in 2017 as, as well. Yeah, let's split it up. Let's maybe okay. take the first first question to your current business, and then we run back to the current market. So, current business first. Right. Um, let's have a small touch on that one. Okay. My current business is called Pleiades, uh, which is a small or yeah, small distributor and publisher of mobile games outside of the app stores. Uh, we're doing this now since yeah, basically 2017, 18 or so. Um, it's Obviously, I benefited from being in this industry for so long that um, my network and uh, also reputation has been growing uh, through all these years and I uh, could relatively easily start that business after Sandex ended. And we're doing fine. We have like 100 game developers who work with us and we only distribute third-party products. So we buy games, let's say, from an indie studio, from a medium-sized company, and we will distribute their games uh, worldwide outside the app stores. So that's, that's a nice um, medium-sized business. We're fine with that. And that, of course, builds the bridge, what you just asked uh, in the second part of the question, where's the current state of the industry and what about the metaverse? Um, it's a huge topic, of course. The question is how much time do we have to talk about it? No, seriously, um, I think the industry uh, already tries to go the first steps and I would say there was a first round of uh, crypto games, which made, most of them made a lot of mistakes. And there was a lot of learning, like always when a new market segment appears. In the beginning, you don't know how it works and you have to make a lot of um, learning by doing mistakes. But I think now we're seeing a second wave of crypto games coming where you have much more solid tokenomics. Um, more, um, the investors would look much closer what they're really investing in and what the project really is. Although what I hear from conversations with investors or VCs, a lot of them are saying we don't understand video games. We don't know. We don't know if you're building the next hit or not. We cannot say. So, um, but you have seen, uh, if, you, if you read the news, there's so many game funds launched, so much money being ready to invest in uh, crypto gaming. The question really is who is going to get it right? And I don't think it's just one big company. That's, that's a tremendous part you just touched there. And we have been talking about that, having a small coffee earlier today, yesterday. I have a rather big background in gaming, um, being full-time in gaming for, for 12 months in a part of my life. Um, I devoted my life to, to this subject, to gaming actually, and got very, very deep into it. So I'm very, very much looking forward to grow in the space, to see the space growing, and to have the developers there, to see new games coming up. So um, if you talk about the metaverse and metaverse gaming, yes, I believe also there have been tremendous mistakes. Um, an upfront payment of several hundred dollars for a gamer to play a game which actually sucks, most gamers won't do it. So, yeah. And I think what you're seeing with those hundreds of dollars of prepayments, a lot of it is NFT sales and a lot of it, of it is not from gamers, but it could be like from uh, traders or even there's investment clubs who would buy a lot of uh, NFTs whenever they're launched just to try to sell them later for a larger uh, profit. So it's not necessarily the gamers that you reach as an audience right now with a crypto game. And that cannot work in the long run, I guess. Games should be made for gamers and not for traders. And this is so interesting. When we talk together, when we talk about this topic, you having a huge gaming background, you're interested in the games, you're interested in the background, in the ecosystem of a game. So that's, that's very, very... Yeah, a great advantage actually for you to have this background as a gamer as well um, for the development and for the play style of a game. So yeah, I'm 
I'm very, very stoked and I'm hyped about the future in this space. And I hope we can stay in touch and have a, a lot more um, conversations like this, several conversations in the future about the market. And um, maybe in a few months we have a talk again, check out how your way is going. I think you have some small project in the building. Let's see how small, how big it is. You don't want to disclose too much right now, but um, that's, that's very interesting. Um, maybe, maybe you can say one or two things yes, about if, it. If I may, I would say a little bit about it. So yeah, we're sure. trying to create a, you could call it a metaverse project, but I would rather say it's a huge online game, mobile and browser, maybe on PC. And it's